good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, let me remind you that uh, we do have a website, <coughs> excuse me, at deepinscripture.com where you can not only connect to all the old Deep in Scripture programs, but you can see the previous studies that we've been uh, progressing through as we've been looking at the book of Romans. And today we're going to look at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. And we are right in the, uh, the middle or maybe towards the end of this long section of Romans where the Apostle Paul is dealing with a question that uh, must have been on the minds of those early Jewish and Gentile converts to the church in Rome. And that's what about all those Jews that were the chosen people of our Lord who haven't accepted Jesus? What about them? What about, uh, is it their fault? Uh, or is it God's plan? Uh, what about the great promises of God, the covenant? What about all that? What's it mean? Uh, and why has God, what have we done uh, that we were so honored and good and righteous that God would reject them and choose us? Is that really the way to understand it? Or were they getting a bit proud about the great gift of their salvation? It's a bit of what we're going to look at in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. But first, what I'd like us to do, Ken, is we get an email, and we want to deal with an email. Um, and we'd love to hear from you, the audience, if you have any questions or comments about anything that we're studying or something you'd like us to talk about. This email came in uh, from Philip, and he had a was also calling himself the future Tiber Swim Team captain of 2015, which that <laughs> sounds to me his way of saying that this year he's planning to come home to the Catholic Church again. But uh, yeah. <clears throat> he sends us an email, which admittedly we can't cover all in, in the time we have, but he asks, Dear Coming Home Network, God bless you for the work you do. Can you discuss the development of modern Protestantism and of Protestant thought from the Reformation forward. Uh, now, before I go on, Ken, do you think you can do that in about 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> about 10 lifetimes. <laughs> I mean, it's, but it's a good question. I didn't mean to belittle it. Is, it. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a good question. Yeah. yeah. And, he says, and he goes on, for instance, uh, the novelties of altar calls, sinner's prayers, symbolic baptism, symbolic Eucharist, personal relationship, personal interpretations of scriptures, rejection of infant baptism, et cetera, et cetera. I would like this, would find this useful in my discussions with Protestant family members to help illustrate the theological novelty of Protestant theology in the framework of Catholic salvation history in Christ Philip. Now, Ken, what do you think? When, back when you were a Presbyterian pastor and theologian and seminary professor, did you consider that um, that your Protestant theology was a novelty? Well, yeah, it's a great question because um, I think that those who seek to be faithful to Scripture would like to think that their that theology is not a novelty. It's because it's it's faithful to Scripture. It goes back to the very beginning, and and this question actually admits of a very um, 
profound um, answer that's way beyond our ability here to answer. But I would recommend um, a book by Professor Brad Gregory, uh, the University of Notre Dame. It's called The Unintended Reformation. And what, what Professor Gregory says in that book basically is that the Reformation unleashed developments into the modern world, which it did not intend to lead to what we have today. Um, but the the secularism, uh, the relativism, uh, the materialism, all of these uh, sort of modern isms, which really are, if, when you really examine them, have very have had very detrimental effects on us as human beings. Um, these, not all, but to some extent, derive from uh, the 16th century Reformation, or at least that opened the door that then there, there came a flood of, of sort of isms to come. Um, and th- one of the big questions that w- existed in the time of Luther and Calvin and Cramner and all the uh, reformers, Zwingli and so forth, they... One of the big questions was, um, you know, who's being faithful to the ancient Catholic faith here? And um, the the debate was uh, Calvin was claiming, uh, Luther was claiming, no, no, we're being faithful to the Scriptures. The Roman Catholic Church is not because we're going back to Scripture. We're going back to the early intentions. And that's exactly what I believed when I was a Presbyterian pastor and then later a theological professor teaching others to prepare to preach the Protestant gospel. What my own reading and examination showed me was that I was flat wrong, uh, that it wasn't, in fact, the Protestantism wasn't the faith of the ancient church. You know, Jude says, and, and this is in the little letter, the next to last book of the Bible, Jude verse 3 says, that I'm writing to you about the faith that's once and for all delivered to the saints. And that's what the ancient church thought, that they were not going to make up anything new, but simply explicate what is in the faith that's there from the apostles. And so um, the faith that, that the church then both held to and in various ways refined over time because of various heresies that came up, like the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, these very important central doctrines of our faith, these things were simply an attempt to remain faithful to the tradition that had gone before. So uh, the novelties that were introduced uh, at the time of the Reformation um, were things that opened the door for all kinds of modern, I would say, mis, uh, misapprehensions or mis, mis uh information about Scripture. Now, it's important to note, however, that the Reformation wasn't the first time that there were novelties introduced. (laughs) Wycliffe in the 14th century, um, Occam in the uh, 14th century, um, there were all kinds of, uh, Berengar in the the 11th century, all of these, there was all kinds of problems that arose in the ancient church. But what what the church did was the church responded as a whole. Then they went, in other words, in the Catholic nature of the church, the universal nature of the church, as sort of symbolized and expressed through the Pope, they responded 
uniformly to these problems. What happened in the Reformation was that there was a disintegration of that unity and led to multiple churches and multiple confessions. And that's when there was no longer any unified voice that the church was speaking with. You know, I was thinking of one novelty particularly, uh, and that is the the issue of uh, images in the church. Are they all right or not? And, um, you know, I'm one that believes that way back in, Galatians chapter three verse one, when when Paul talks about the uh, the crucifixion of of our Lord being portrayed before mm-hmm. his readers, uh, in my mind that could be an early reference to an icon or to a drawing or to even a crucifix, because what else could it mean? Mm-hmm. But the point is that in the early days of the church, there were uh, you know is it all right to have pictures of our Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And in I can't remember exactly what century, Ken, the great iconoclastic struggles between right. the East and the West in the church uh, that caused great division amongst Christians within the church, East and West, but then it was decided. That's and the right, issue was set right. aside. Mm-hmm. But then the Reformation opened up that can of worms all over again. And even, I think you're the one that reminded me that even Luther himself said, these, are, these novelties were not my intent to open up all over again. That's right, exactly. Um, iconoclasm uh, was, a, was a movement, especially within the Eastern Christianity, that took place in the 8th, basically in the 8th century. Uh, from about 730 all the way to the Second Council of Nicaea, which is the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Uh, That was uh, in 787. And that council uh, accepted um, accepted the arguments that had been given by St. John Damascene. Uh, St. John Damascene wrote this beautiful... um, this beautiful treatise on the the Orthodox faith. And in that treatise, he gives a defense of the use of the images. Now, these, of course, were two-dimensional images. These weren't statues, because in the East they use icons, which are two-dimensional images, like a painting. But um, basically, St. John Damascene says that... An image is not the same as its referent. So if we make an image of God, it's not God. So to worship an image would be wrong. But he says Christians don't worship images. They they venerate the person that's in the image. And they worship, if that person, that person is divine, as in Jesus Christ, then we do. Now, when it's said in the Old Testament, you should not make images it didn't. It, what it meant really was that we as human beings don't have the right to make images, but God has the right to make an image of Himself, and He did. That's why Jesus is called in the Bible. He is the image of the Father. God made an image of Himself by sending His own Son into the world, and so the church said, "Well, then, then images are not strictly forbidden as long as we." Uh, keep them in in the right perspective. So that's what we need to do. Now, when the Reformation started, as you, re, as you referred to later there later, um, in, in this 
20s, there were those in Germany that went through the churches destroying the images. And they said, this is against, you know, the commandments of God. And Luther said, no, wait a minute. And they were doing it because Luther had, you know, stepped forward and challenged the church in the 95 Theses on the door of St. Mary's Church in Wittenberg. And Luther then quickly said, no, 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 this is not what I'm about. This is, we're not trying to do anything to destroy these, uh, the great uh, traditions of the church. I think eventually Lutheranism did do that, but yeah. that wasn't as intentional originally. Yeah, again, it's this, the bottom line of this, Ken, is summarized in one of my favorite little verses of the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 11, Psalm 11, 3, in which the psalmist said, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the found, when the foundations, if the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? And the question there, there are four questions in there. Number one, what are the foundations? What are the essentials? When we think about Christianity, what, what defines what are essentials and what are novelties? Mm-hmm. And who de- decides that? That's right. And that was the question that was raised in the Reformation. Who decides what are essentials and what ain't? And I think, I think Ken, it was Augustine that made that famous statement. You probably know it in Latin, you know, that in, uh, in essentials, unity, and not essentials, diversity, mm-hmm. and all things, charity. Mm-hmm. So who defines what are essentials and what are not essentials? To, to therefore decide, number two, whether the foundations are in trouble or not, whether they're destroyed, whether they're just ailing, or whether they're just fine. Who decides that? Is it up to the individual? And you refer to the fact that Luther opened a can of worms, and pretty soon the laity, they took it upon themselves to decide that these icons are a sign that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so once you've decided yourself... What are the essentials? Number two, what their conditions are. The number three, the psalmist, psalmist asks the question, well, what are the righteous to do? So number three, who are the righteous? Who have the authority to redefine, to change, to bring about revisions? And if you open up the idea that it's up to every individual to, number one, decide what's essential, what does Scripture mean, and whether our lives are according to that or not, and then thirdly to decide, well, it's up to me to do it. I'm the righteous. I have the authority to make whatever change I want. Mm -hmm. And so number four, then what can the righteous do? And that leads, the doing part is the actions that people take upon themselves. They read a scripture. They don't like what they see in the world. So they think, well, that's God speaking to me to make changes. And that's why we have novelty starting almost every day in Christianity. Well, this is, uh, I'm so glad that you uh, stressed these points because what all of this says to me is that the, the fundamental difference with regard to questions of truth and authority uh, is the difference between the Catholic idea that not I as an individual, but we as the whole church are making the decisions about what the foundations are, whether they're in trouble, who the righteous are, and what the righteous should do. Um, and 
And and then in contrast to that, the idea that this extreme individualism, which is, oh, well, I should decide. Or, you know, I know what the trouble is. Or I know who the righteous are, and I'm one of them, and I'm going to do something about it. Uh, it's it's not, uh, in other words, the difference here is the idea of, of Christianity as a and the church as having official organizational structure to it versus a kind of amorphous jello-like church that sort of floats along and becomes what it wants to become and this is why the catholic church is so incomprehensible to so many people because what it says is essence is that whether there's a good bishop or a bad bishop even whether the pope is good or bad the office still stands and it's that office of the papacy. It's that office of the bishop. It's that office of the priest, which cannot be injured by a bad man who happens to occupy it at the time. You see, that's what really was at the heart of the Reformation. There were bad priests. There were self-righteous and self-seeking bishops. And sometimes even the popes. There's their own sin came came through for everybody to see. Uh, but what but what people did is they said, does the, the question they should have asked is, <clears throat> does this does my faith depend upon this man as a man, or does it depend upon the truth that's attached to the office of pope or office of bishop or office of being a priest? Yeah, one other uh, uh, doctrine or novelty that happened in our lifetime, Ken came about through the, a book published by one of the Watergate conspirators. Uh, the book was called Born Again by Chuck yeah, Colson. Yeah. Good yeah, man, good faithful yeah. Christian brother. We know that. Yeah. But he took a verse in John chapter 3, verses 3, and ran with it. When, when our Lord says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Well, now we have an entire movement that sees what he meant by born again to have nothing to do with baptism, but to have mainly an acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In terms of the history of the church, that's a novelty, because for the majority of the history of the church from the very beginning, it was always understood that being born again is what happens as a gift of baptism, not by something we do or someone else does but by the grace of God that changes us through the waters of baptism, which is exactly what Jesus says in verse 5 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The reference was to what happens in baptism. Now, that's connected with our faith in Jesus Christ, of course, but it was always understood to be baptism. But the novelty came, as you said, when the idea of church became more of a a gelatinous uh, uh, idea, uh, depending on every individual's believer of understanding what what a gathering of Christians together constitutes a church or not. And we get these novelties that have truly changed many, many people's life. It has brought them closer to Jesus, but it has watered down the original meaning, which was the power and the importance of baptism. Well, I suspect that this is what our, our questioner, Philip, is uh, wondering about. When you mentioned particularly baptism, um, it was the Lutherans who kept that ancient idea of, of baptismal regeneration. 
that baptism gives us, uh, the spirit, that it renews our and faith. But then others like Calvin and then others in that more in that vein, eventually the Baptist denied that there's any uh, sacramental power to baptism at all. And so the only there's more power in a man's in, in, interior and um, subjective faith than there is in the objective uh, administration of baptism. And so that's that's definitely a novelty. And that's one of the things that I came to see myself that made me realize, wait a minute, my view of baptism simply isn't the view of the ancient church fathers. And it isn't, the, it isn't right there what's right there in John chapter 3, which I'd always interpreted <laughs> in a different way, yeah. you see. So <clears throat> our, our question here, Philip, is um, actually on to something very wise, and that is um, we need to sort out those things that are novel from those things which are foundational that you were quoting from Psalm 11. What are the foundations? Well, the foundations are what's in the New Testament and what's in the early church fathers as they interpret the New Testament. Who decides? Not me, not you, but the whole church decides, as particularly capsulized, you might say, in the bishops of the church, and particularly the Bishop of Rome. Remember what St. Cyprian said in the 3rd century, which wasn't his own idea, it was the idea of many. He said that the, the church, the bishop is, uh, the church is, excuse me, the bishop is in the church, and the church is in the bishop. So that the, the official leaders, ordained uh, leaders in apostolic succession from the apostles, they are the ones that are responsible for the articulation of the foundations of the church. Ken, this really does bring us to the background to the passage we're looking at in Romans chapter 11, because what we're dealing with is individual Jewish and Gentile convert Christians in Rome trying to understand a problem, trying to understand a, a conundrum. And the conundrum is, well, what about God's chosen people that did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. What about them? And so you have these individual or groups of, of uh, converts, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, living together in Rome, trying to understand this issue. And so the, who's going to decide God's view of the Jews now that they didn't accept Jesus? What's going to happen with them? Who decides this conundrum? And what we have is Paul giving not just his opinion, but speaking as an apostle in the authority that he has in the church. So, Ken, why don't you, again, before we take the break in a couple minutes and we get to the passage, set the context of this section in the wider context of Romans. Well, this is a wonderful passage that we're looking at today. It's not the climax of chapter 11, but it's the penultimate uh, section. That is, Paul is laying out here um, in a way that perhaps he does nowhere else, the way in which God, in his mysterious workings with the Jews and the Gentiles, essentially Paul is saying here is that God has, God is working with the Jews. He has not forsaken them. That's very important. He has not forsaken them as Jews, even though... They don't believe in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's not forgotten them. But what he's doing is he's given an opportunity for Gentiles to come to be grafted in to the vine. Uh, 
And that background really goes back to uh, the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 5, to Psalm 80, where Israel, the people of Israel, are viewed as a vine which God planted in the land of Canaan and which has grown over time. Paul now is dealing with that question uh, of what's happened to them in the light of their um, their rejection of Christ. What Remember, we can't forget what Paul began chapter 11 with. He says, when he asked the question, has God rejected his people, that is his ancient people Israel, the answer is absolutely not. He says that megenoita is the Greek word. He says, sometimes translated, God forbid. God would never do that, such a thing. He says, I'll give you the evidence. I'm an Israelite. I'm of the seed of Abraham. And then he gives a second example in Elijah, who has, uh, who's whining in, in the cave at Horeb about whether God has forsaken uh, him or forsaken Israel. He said, no, no, I've not. I, I've had, I have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so uh, to, to Baal. Uh, so in other words, Paul here is telling us that God has not rejected his people, but now in this section, he's going to be dealing with the question of what, well, how are we to understand what God is doing here? Okay, we know that God has not rejected his people, but what is he doing? And that's where he's going to be arguing here that the Gentiles now are given the opportunity to come into this wonderful experience of faith. Remember that all of this is on the background of what most people take to be the theme verse of the book of Romans. It goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In other words, the Jew is the one who is the first in God's plan, and then the Gentiles come. Why? Because God chose Abraham to be the father of all believers, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, as we get, approach the break, I'd like to point out one verse for our audience that to insist that these verses are not merely dealing with an issue 2,000 years ago, but are dealing with an issue right now. And I don't mean necessarily in relationship to the Jews. What I mean is in relationship to our faith. Because in verse 22, he says that the kindness of God to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Have we become proud and complacent in the faith we have in Jesus Christ? We'll talk about that when we come back after the break. See you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, 
please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And let me just take this time to uh, thank you not only for listening, but for the opportunity to do this program with Dr. Howell. I, I really enjoy doing this with Ken. The, the only negative is that Ken's in Illinois and I'm in Ohio, so we're, we're limited by our technology. But it, this allows Ken and I to share our love for Scripture and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and His church with you and I hope that you enjoy this program. We'd love to hear from you. You can go to the CH Network Facebook page, or you can join us on Twitter, Twitter at CH Network. And we'd love to have an email from you. You can write to dis at chnetwork.org to let us know your questions, comments about, about this program, uh, and how it might help you, excuse me, in your walk with our Lord Jesus and his church. Ken, we're going to look at Romans 11 through 24. Um, we've kind of divided this section into three parts, though it's hard to divide it up because it's one flowing argument from St. Paul, as yes. are chapter 9, 10, and 11, all of our one flowing argument. But let me read verse 11 through 15, and then uh, we'll get into the, the point of what, what is he trying to say. For it begins in verse 11, Paul says, So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now a couple things, Ken, and then I'll throw it back to you. Uh, those of you that go to the website, if you, I think my son John Mark, who always puts this, the information up for you to listen and, and maybe get on podcasts, we also put our worksheet up, and I've, this week I've tried to 
use some color coding to visually show Paul's argument because he uses a variety of words to say the same thing, to look at the, if you will, the elephant from a variety of angles. But for example, he uses the phrase, their trespass, their failure, their rejection, and then down in verse 20 and 23, their unbelief, to essentially say the same thing. He's talking about the rejection of Judaism of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he not only calls it their unbelief, but he calls it their rejection, even so far as to say it's their trespass, their failure. So Ken will come back to that and how all those words we say refer to one act by Israel. Number two, he uses the word jealous to make Israel jealous. Uh, the act of God to make Israel jealous, and then the work of St. Paul, his very ministry, to make them jealous. So there's a motive there, the motive of God, and the motive of Paul's work is to make the Jews jealous with an end result. And he, again, describes this end result in a variety of ways. Salvation to the Gentiles riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. Verse 15 means the reconciliation of the world. All of this are connected with, on the one hand, the unbelief and the failure uh, and the trespass of the Jews, and the result is the salvation that's come to the Gentiles. And the, but, but in the midst of this is this motive of God and the motive of Paul to make them jealous. Yeah, this is um, in this passage. I think that you're you're explaining here the dynamics of. Remember that you know some weeks ago when we were beginning Romans, we talked about the church in Rome must have consisted of uh, both um, Jews who had moved in the diaspora had moved to Rome, and there probably was a sizable Jewish community in Rome by the time that this letter was written. Let's say in the fifties of the first century. And then it also had, obviously, Gentiles. Um, <clears throat> at various points in the letter, back in chapter 2, Paul has been addressed the Jews very directly, and the Jewish Christians, that is, in the congregation, or Gations, in this church of Rome. And now he's addressing the Gentiles, and he's saying, you know, their failure, their trespass, their rejection, their unbelief is obvious. But think about what that means for you. It means riches for the Gentiles. It means riches for the world. It means reconciliation. So <clears throat> it's it's as it were you know, when he speaks about jealousy. Of course, he's he's imagining that the Jew might look and say, "What in the world is going on? These Jew these Gentiles are believing in the Jewish Messiah." And then the idea is then Paul hopes that this would spur them to believe. Yeah, in verse eleven. The question is, uh, have they stumbled so as to fall? In other words, their failure, their trespass, their stumbling, their unbelief, is this so that it's done for them? And he's saying, no, it's not done for them. No, their right. stumbling is so that, number one, it will bring blessings to the world. 
to the Gentiles, just as the prophets in the Old Testament were always trying to tell Israel, hey, guys, you're supposed to share this with the world. It's not just for you. It's for the world. Well, so that came. But in the midst of this is not their falling. It's this issue of their being jealous, Ken. I mean, why the word jealous as a motive in the midst of this? Well, it's. I think what it, what it is is, um, <laughs> it's a little bit like um, someone who grows up, let's say, here in the United States, and takes for granted all the wonderful freedoms that we have, freedom of speech, and then <clears throat> and abuses that freedom in some way. Um, but then someone comes, let's say, from a country uh, where they've not been allowed to speak. Well, they can't disagree with the government. Like this used to happen with the Soviet Union back in the 1970s and the 1980s. Remember all the people that came from the from the Soviet Union, uh, like uh, the, the perhaps the most famous was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who was largely forgotten by our public today, but a man who spoke with a very powerful prophetic voice back in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. Because he came from a society where there was no freedom of speech. And it's as if Paul would be now applying to that situation and say, look what these people have been deprived of. Now you, and yet you have, you've received it. And people had to come here from those communist countries to tell us what a great treasure that we had. It's a little bit like that. The Gentiles, Paul saying... I got to tell the Jews what a great treasure they had in the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. It's like one of the always the goals of evangelization, the strategies of evangelization, is we we really hope people will look at us and want what we have. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, that, that's right. And that's what the Pope wants as well. Pope Francis has recently spoken about this, that by living our faith more um, vibrantly, and not necessarily with more show or display, but just in the sense of more vibrantly, people will hopefully want what we have in Christ. So in other words, the riches we have, the salvation we have in Christ, yeah. the reconciliation we've received— yeah. He wants the Jews to look at the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and yearn for that which they have. Yeah, And that's going to yeah. get to what he's going to warn them about in verses 20 and 22. To, you know, we're going to get to that in a moment because we have a responsibility. Non-Christians should look at us and be jealous of what we have. And what is it that they are to be jealous of? Our riches in terms of our success, uh, what we've arrived to, is that what he's talking about? Or is it seeing the work of Christ in our lives, our changing our love, um, our forgiveness, our generosity, our humility? Those are the yeah. gifts that we've received by grace. Those are the riches we've received. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to say on that hill far away uh, in his Sermon on the Mount about the riches we've received as a result of the failure of the Gentiles. Now, at the time Christ was preaching that, he was trying to tell 
the Jews this great gift they could have in him if they accepted him. But because of their stumbling, their failure, it was then, uh, as Paul did every time when he would preach in a synagogue, once he was rejected, he would then kick the dust off his feet and go down the street and proclaim the gospel to the non-Jews. I mean, that was the, that's kind of the background to what's happening here. That's right, yeah. Well, that's clearly portrayed in the book of Axworth. And it, re- it reminds us, uh, you put that well, because, <clears throat> you see, when you're, let's say you're a secular person, even if you're a, a professing Christian, but your mind is basically secularized, there's one way in which people think about <clears throat> the great blessings that they might have, and that is that they somehow did something to deserve them, right? It's like the old song in, in uh, Sound of Music, you know, I must have done something good, you know, because <laughs> I've got all these blessings and so much something somewhere, sometime in my childhood, I must have done something good. In other words, <clears throat> they can think about it only in terms of achievement. So when we speak about the blessings that we have as Christians, as Catholic Christians, blessings in Christ, blessings in the church, they naturally think that we're thinking that we've done something to deserve it. But that's why humility and a a spirit of gratitude is what must be pervasive in the mind and the heart of a Christian, because we have not deserved these things at all. They've been given to us as gifts, and all we're saying to people is, hey, would you like to share in this gift as well? It's not something we got because of something we've done. It's because of us. And that, I think, that's what Paul is really saying to us here. Don't be proud fellow, uh, you know, our Gentile Christians, because you didn't deserve this. You were given this as a gift. You know, that's exactly what Paul was telling to the Ephesian Christians back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with it. In other words, the Gentile Christians to whom Paul is addressing in Ephesus, that they didn't get this great gift because they were so good back when they were pagans. It was while they were yet pagans, or as Paul says in Romans, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. So the gift you've received is not because you were so deserving. It was because, essentially it was because the Jews stumbled. The Mm -hmm. Jews in their trespass opened the door for the rest of the world. And Ken, talk about the the rest of this when he says in verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What did Paul mean by that passage? Yeah, that's well, that's great. And we're going to we'll get into that more uh, next week when we get into chapter uh, the end of the chapter in verse 25, when he talks about the mystery of the hardening that's happened. But it seems to me the clear implication of verse 15 is the holding out this hope. So the fact is, the fact is in the if clause, if there, if the rejection of the Jews has in fact been reconciliation of the world, well then just imagine if the Jews actually received this truth from Christ, 
if they actually accepted the life given from God. Wouldn't I mean that would be practically like life from the dead. Yeah. That seems to be what he's saying. In other words, Paul here is reaffirming this very important truth that every Christian, and I might add every Catholic Christian, must embrace, and that is God has not rejected the Jews. He's giving them opportunity. He's giving them time to come back into the fold. In verse 16 through 21, then, can he... It it almost sounds like... um, you know there are there are hypercritical theologians that always want to kind of look at these books and and see them as a compilation of documents so i could almost imagine someone saying well there was some other document that some copier later dropped into his argument uh that paul said something later but in reality this is the flow of his thinking as he uses an analogy analogies of the Old Testament, very important analogies Mm -hmm. that Israel always understood. So let me read this, Canna, then expound on it. Verse 16, Paul says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, quote, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, unquote. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Hmm. Well, one thing is clear. Paul then is using these two different analogies. One has to do with the, the loaf and the dough that uh, is holy, the whole lump is is holy because the first fruit is holy. And then he uses the branch analogy as well. And both of them find roots in the Old Testament. If we ask the question, well, then who, he says, if the first fruit is holy, then the whole lump is holy. What does he mean by the first fruit? I think he clearly here is thinking of the patriarchs, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they are the foundation of the nation of Israel, and if they're holy, that holiness extends to the whole nation, everything that comes to them. And likewise, he uses the word root. If the root of the branch is holy, then the branches are holy. Paul is thinking here, you might say, of sacramental or or sanctifying diffusion, okay? Now, what that means is that if Abraham, if Isaac, if Jacob were chosen to be God's people, then their descendants are also chosen to be God's people. And this, by the way, is the part of the rationale that we have for infant baptism. In other words, if if a family is dedicated to God, then the whole family is made holy. The children are holy. They, too, are a part of the covenant family. Um, now, I think what Paul here is, is telling us then is he's telling the Gentiles in Rome, and he's telling us too, that you can't simply exclude the Jews and write them off as being unholy 
or being beyond God's grace. And you see, that's the objection that they might bring up, which he anticipates in verse 19. The objection was, well, wait a minute, those branches, those Jews who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes, but they've been broken off so that I've become the new branches. And he reminds them that they were broken off not because God wanted them to be broken off, but because of their unbelief, which is a call to vigilance that we stand only through faith. And we must stand in awe. We must have that holy fear before God because our faith is that which has allowed us to be brought in to the branches, to the the vine. But it's not something that we can simply sit back and take for granted. Yeah, uh, this image of first fruits um, is a common image throughout the New Testament epistles. Yeah. Uh, one other place, um, Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, when he's uh, giving his witness to the resurrection, um, and he says in, in verse 20, if, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a, mi- a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. So we have this idea of the first fruit, our Lord Jesus. You know, the, uh, the dough has been made holy mm-hmm. through our Lord Jesus. And mm-hmm. it's changed everything. Change the world. Salvation has come to the Gentiles, riches to the world, reconciliation to the world, because that first fruit is Jesus. And therefore, it spreads to the whole lump. And then we're called, therefore, to not be proud, to not take it as if we earned it. Right. Uh, but, but we are now to go forth as first fruits. And we see this in James chapter 1, when he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So therefore, in obedience and in imitation of our Lord Jesus, we are called to be first fruits going forth, not taking it for granted, this gift that we've received because we've been grafted on. It isn't because we were so good, but now as a result of this, we are to go forth. And Ken, I'm also reminded of this imagery in John 15, right? Yes. You know, the vine in the branches. Right. And we are to abide in him, and we are to produce fruit. And what does he say happens if we don't produce fruit? We're thrown away, just like the original branches that stumbled and fell. We can, it, the same can happen to us. There's no idea of this once saved, always saved idea. It's the continuous idea that we are to be fruitful branches. And how are we to be fruitful branches? By abiding in Christ. How do we abide in Christ? John 6, we abide in Christ through intimacy with our Lord, his body and blood. 
eating his body and blood is how life comes within to us that empowers us to be fruit-producing branches. Well, the, the, the text of Scripture is very clear that it's uh, in various places it says, um, like, for example, the Lord said in Matthew, he said, it's he who endures to the end that will be saved. We find that in those seven letters uh, to the various churches of Asia Minor in the book of Revelation, it's he who endures. You conquers. Uh, yeah. that, will, that, that, that will conquer, right? And so we find the same way in, in the book of Hebrews. It's let us run with diligence, the race with patience, the race that's set before us, right? And earlier in, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer says that if we have, <clears throat> if we turn away after having known the truth, we shall incur a greater judgment. So, yeah, I mean, it's very clear that both in, in John 15 and these other passages that there is a responsibility on our part to endure the end. The idea of being having once been a Christian, always being a Christian, is is a presumption. It's not. It's not biblical. Uh, what we must do is what Paul says here: is to stand in awe, do not become proud, uh, continue to place our faith in the kindness of God. Uh, whereas he says in verse twenty-two of chapter eleven, he says God's kindness is toward you, but provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. As a trans, we're about ready to close again this week, but going into next week, beginning with verse 25, maybe talk with verse 23, 24, and 25, how this leads us into the rest of chapter 11. Well, I think that uh, it's chapter 25, verse 25 is a very key verse, and Paul says, I do not wish you to be ignorant, brothers, of this mystery, uh, that you may not become, uh, you know, arrogant, but that a... That, uh, or excuse me, that you may not be wise in yourselves, but that there's a hardening that's happened to Israel, a hardening in part. What is this hardening in part? Is it something that's impartial in time or partial in terms of the number of people? But then he, he puts a limit to that. He says that the fullness, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Next week, Marcus, we need to discuss what this hardening in part to Israel is and what the fullness of the Gentiles is and how this leads him to this wonderful doxology at the end about the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Okay. And it, again, it always comes back also to our accepting of our responsibility as the gift we've received as branches on this great vine of Christ. It's a gift that we're not to take proudly or take for granted, but to recognize that we must continue in this so that we remain as first fruits, as a witness to Jesus Christ in his church to others. There are people in our lives that don't know Christ. Will they see him in our lives in the way we love? May God help us to do that. God bless. See you next week.